Hi there, I'm Cynthia Deeran and welcome to the Business Beyond Borders podcast where I explore what it takes to turn your business into an international success. Every couple of months, we partner with exceptional companies to deliver our Expand Your Vision Masterclass, which is a one-day deep dive into creating your international strategy. If you want to create a stellar international strategy, this is a great place to start. To find out when the next masterclass is on and to book your ticket, go to internationalbusinessaccelerator.com forward slash events or follow the link in the show notes. Today, I'm talking to Vanessa Gerard, Australia's consumer goods queen. Vanessa founded her group of companies in 2006 and today her key focus is developing unique design-led products for the consumer electronics and camping segments. Believe it or not, one in two Australians own a product that one of Vanessa's companies has produced and we're going to chat about that on the show. Perhaps even more impressively, the Garrard Group now has a global footprint with key markets in the US and China. And it sells to household names, including Walmart, Best Buy, Argos, Kmart, Aldi, and Target. To top it off, Vanessa juggles running her empire with raising a family of four. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And you are joining us from Vietnam today. Uh, tell me a bit about what you're doing there. Uh, look, I've just flown over for EY. So Hanson Young have got an entrepreneurial winning women conference uh, that they hold in different cities every year. And I was part of the cohort, um, one of the Australian uh, women in the first one, which is 2015. So now I'm alumni and come in each year to different countries to work with the other women that are coming through the program. Um, and we're all sort of looking at networking and how we can help each other in business through Asia Pacific and, and also, you know, US and UK markets. Um, so it's really about, you know, we have speakers come up and talk through their experiences. And then, you know, throughout the, the week, we all network and have a chat about, you know, how we can help each other and what we can learn and, you know, our challenges that we go through and all that fun stuff. So, um, yeah, it, I'm here. Uh, it starts today, so it kicks off actually quite shortly. So That yeah. sounds uh, really, really exciting. Yeah. All right. So, you know, bearing in mind that you're about to head off and head into a conference, let's jump in. I wanted to ask you, you know, about all the experience you've had being an entrepreneur because you've done lots of different things. How did you get started? Oh, look, I've got an interesting story and I'm happy to share it. It's, um, I was about eight years old and I remember going, I wanted a toffee apple from a fruit shop. And my mum used to say every week, when you've got your own money, you can get one when you've got the money. So I actually nicked 50 cents out of my dad's wallet. <laughs> the next time we went to the fruit shop, I went and bought one. So I got home and obviously got in a lot of trouble. And dad actually sat me down and said, well, you can't take the money. You need to earn it. So I remember sitting there at eight years up having a really good conversation with dad saying, well, how do I earn it then? So he just said, look, you've got to do jobs and people pay you. And so then I ended up going around the neighbourhood and asked all the um, uh, neighbours if they needed their gardens weeded and got some money for that and then did more and more throughout the estate and started making uh, a fair bit of money. Um, and that sort of then I got encouraged by that, that you could, you know, continue to do it and grow and get your friends involved and, and make some money. So um, about 12, I was about 12 and I started a lolly business. Yep. I was selling lollies door to door. And then I got all my friends, uh, at school and got them to have a basket and sell more lollies and then got their parents to drive us around to different neighborhoods. So, um, yeah, that was sort of the, I don't know, it was always there, I suppose, from that point that, you know, business and trading and, 
selling and pulling people together to create something. And, you know, since then there's, you know, another 17 different businesses that I've started and invested and on boards and all sorts of fun stuff. But yeah, it's just, I love business, right? So it was always wow. age. So just tell us a bit about what it is that you're doing now. So you said you've got 17 businesses, but at the moment, which are the businesses that are taking up most of your, your time and your bandwidth? So Adventure Operations is a, about 18 months ago, I went on a, a um, my, my background, sorry, is consumer products, right? So working a lot and I've got offices in China, um, have been doing that for about 20 years, bringing products from China into the Australian market and developing products. So it's electronics, it's camping outdoor products, uh, medical devices, all sorts of different, all hardware devices. So um, I ended up uh, looking across the market and was looking for larger businesses that have got strong brands that maybe are a little bit sleep at the wheel and not innovating enough. So I, uh, I turned my attention to the camping outdoor leisure segment um, and ended up pulling a deal together to buy Austrail, which is uh, Australia's number one sort of tents outdoor products, gazebos and things. Um, and then I recently also purchased uh, one of their competitors, which is a larger business um, companion brands. So I bought that so that actually now is that that group is under adventure operations is now the largest uh, outdoor uh, leisure products company in Australia. So pulled that deal together and then trying to, you know, get two teams that were for 30 years competitors to start working together was quite a challenge. Um, but we've got through that and it's taken us about eight months to try and get the teams integrated and working really well together now and structured. So um, that's taken a lot of time, mainly because of the people impact in that. Yeah. But I also have um, uh, Dr. Dimney Dornan and I have got another business with medical devices. So we have assisted hearing products, but she runs that and then I'm an investor and, and sit in the background and help with strategy and connections and things. And there's a lot of different sort of little businesses now, women-led businesses that I invest in. Mm. Uh, understanding how challenging it was to raise money throughout the process over the last 20 years, it's now nice to be able to sit in a different seat and actually invest in or help other women raise capital their businesses. So while you mentioned that, let, let's just talk about your experience of being a, a woman and an entrepreneur in that international space. How have you found it? You know, you mentioned challenges. What, how have you found that process of uh, operating internationally, being female and raising money being female? Oh, there's three different questions there, isn't it? Um, look, I think, uh, when the businesses were smaller and I think particularly to one of my electronics companies a few years back, we were, you know, number one in Australia for electronics for all the major retailers. Um, we were developing and innovating a lot of product. Mm. Product itself was unique into world market because we developed it. So it was accepted into retail. So from that point of view, a lot of retailers internationally would say, yes, we want your product. Now, the difference then was walking into those meetings and they would automatically assume that I was the wife or, um, you know, that I worked for the guy who was sitting in the room with me who would have been one of my employees. So that was always challenging, but I always found it a bit of a, it was kind of a bit fun when you'd sit there and actually answer, because we do, I'm very much data and, and um, detail driven, that you'd answer that whatever they'd ask the guy and he wouldn't have the answers and you'd come up and say, well, this is why we're doing it, this is how and here's the impact and what we can do for you. And it would change very quickly and then you'd get a lot of respect from it. So it, although it's challenging, you know it's going to happen, it's, it's quite frustrating now more at a larger level when I'm talking to banks and raising, you know, I might be doing a deal where I'm raising $160 million, 14 different investment groups in the, in the room. I'm the only female 
and they'll tend to talk together and leave you out of it, even though I'm the pioneer of the, uh, the strategy. So that I'm finding it more frustrating at the larger end than I did when I first started. And in the startup phase, I think it was easier then because you knew your stuff and there's just an assumption when you walk into a boardroom or a, a bank meeting or something that you don't know what you're talking about until you do actually prove that. So I find that challenging. Um, in terms of, I think countries, there's a lot of learnings I've had over the years with, you know, just the, our approach. Um, you know, I had some major challenges walking into Japan, trying to deal with Japan as a woman. Um, they wanted our product and we'd sign deals on emails and made things happen. And then face to face, very different. Um, the way you treated in a lot of the meetings, unfortunately, was not great. But, and I think, you know, we've got to be respectful of different countries and cultures. And, and so what I've learned from that probably more so was I shouldn't walk into those meetings. And in that respect, you know, I can still, you take your ego aside and say, how do we do the deal without me having to be there? So in those sorts of situations now, we're talking about finding distributors or you know, retail partners or customers in different countries. I think it's more important now to understand how they work from a customer back and then what's the right approach and get the right teams to be presenting that information, whether it be man or woman or someone local in country. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest learning from it is that you get the right people on the ground in each of those countries, work with them initially and then find out if there's a way to go direct if you need to. Um, that's probably the easiest and biggest lesson I've learned. That's a really interesting strategy to actually take yourself out of the equation. If you can see that by being there, that's, that's going to cause some kind of a problem. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. Sticking on the international markets topic for a second, how did you get into the international space? You know, what was that first foray into an international market? How did it happen? Well, my, and I think in 2006, I started an electronics business and that was the first one that we went international with. Um, we went from the start, the strategy was always to go international um, because our business model was, I didn't want to hold stock. I didn't want to have money tied up in stock in warehouses. So the, the business model was quite unique in that I wanted to do everything direct from China to the retailers. So we call that, you know, a typical FOB business. So in Australia, there were really only five customers at the time that could do that. Um, and that's in majors at the time it was, you know, Dick Smith and it was Big W and Kmart and Target, um, those type of retailers. So I worked with them and we got all those customers in play. Um, our background was really how do we get more products sold? So from the start it was, look, let's develop up one product and make sure that we can sell many. So it meant that we had to then go through, you know, other, other regions and say, look, what are the retailers in the US? What are the ones in the UK and Europe, et cetera, that, you know, we could be dealing with, with that business model. So we knew from the start in developing that it need every product needed to have a global um, reach. So it was the way that we developed products were already ready. So it meant, you know, if it was a powered product, it could be used in the US and Australia as well. So we developed everything that way. So that, Having that mindset early on was really, really good because we were, the products were already ready. You weren't paying again to re-engineer those to suit different markets. So that helped a lot in terms of our cost structure. What we probably, and I think, um, you know, the typical approach most people would have, and we did certainly, was to walk into a trade show in that country, present your products, and then hopefully you get all the buyers to come, right? So we did uh, quite a few Hong Kong trade shows and got loads of contacts thought, okay, let's go off and, and start selling to those customers. Um, the challenge was, and I think particularly our biggest, my biggest lesson, um, would have been going into the US market 
where the buyers, so we'd have buyers from Walmart or Kroger's or Dillard's, our big, our big customers, they're the ones we wanted. They were, we were talking to them. We've got, you know, business cards directly from that buyer um, saying, yes, we want your product. The challenge though was that the business model was so different and it is so different that we didn't, we underestimated how complex it was in terms of having to have distribution over there and to have local reps that they deal with. So very different to every other market, I think, was um, we could deal, I could walk in with my sales team and we could deal directly with the buyers at, you know, Big W, for example. Mm. You can't do that in the US. So we just thought we could. And so we, you know, spent all this money and set up our own team in the US and said, okay, let's just go and take our samples over into those buyers and start doing meetings. Um, and then it turned out, you know, who's your rep and who's your distributor and, you know, what's the vendor code? And we didn't have all of that. So cost us, you know, I think we, we'd burned a couple hundred thousand before we realised that that wasn't going to work and retracted and uh, got our business model together again and then went back in about a year and a half later. And that point we found the right distributors on the ground, we found a good rep base and the orders started to come straight away then. Same product, same price point, everything else, the picture, everything was the same, but we just need, we didn't have the route to market done properly. So if, if a company is looking to engage a distributor or a reseller in an international market, how do you think people should go about it? Uh, what do they look yeah. for? What should they, what should they do? What shouldn't they do? I think now what we've learned was, and, and I've seen this even with the, the last two businesses that I purchased, they're very big businesses. Um, they had the same thing. And, and I think everyone I've spoken to has had the same approach where they've come from a, a point of being a business owner and a great product or great service and you want to then sell that into market and you're trying to make that fit. What, we've, what I've realised and from all those lessons was go to the customers first, which for our, in my instance, for consumer products, was go to those retailers, have a look at every product that's on shelf, who is supplying those, try and work with them first to say, well, you know, work with them to say, will you be our distributor and take this product into market? Because they already have the trading terms set up. They already have a relationship with the buyer. They've already got their route to market sorted. So we do that in every country now. If I'm walking into Japan or, or could be China or anyone, is to go, who are our retail customers that we want? Go in and have a look at every shop front that they've got and see what products are there and who's distributing those, the names behind them, and then try and work with them first. Yeah. I think that approach has made it a lot easier. Um, and it's not trying to, because buyers are incredibly busy, right? They, it's an easy, you're trying to make it easy. Everything we do is to try and make it easier for them. But we walk into a new market and I'm walking in saying we need to set up, you know, our business as a new supplier and go through that process is not easy. So to keep along the lines of our DNA was to make it easy is to work with someone they're already working with and take the products in for us. So I think that's the easiest, that's exactly what I would suggest to anyone looking for a distributor. And so it's really uh, doing your research first and then finding the right distributor who already works with the people who you want to eventually sell to. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. And it may not even be. We've had a lot of success where it's not, because you're not going to necessarily deal with a competitor, right? Mm. So in your space and I have, I don't know, could be chairs or I have electronics products. I'm not going to go to the main supply of electronics because it's either going to copy you or, or block you out. But there are other verticals always that could, you could work with somebody else who's in that retailer that it would be a, a nice fit and they're happy to get into that space. Yeah. I think that's the, the other thing is to look at not necessarily the main competitors, but is there another adjacency within that retailer mm. and a 
could could sort of you know it, it actually grows their portfolio as well. Yes. The trading term, so it's just an easy way to get in. What are some of the other common mistakes that you see companies making as they start tackling the international space? Oh, probably pricing model number yes. one. So if you know if you're fortunate enough to have a, a strong brand and product in Australia, you can work directly with retailers. So your model's probably got their margin factored in and your margin. So the problem then is is exactly that that if you need to fit a distributor in the middle, a lot of people are and now that you can look on the internet any time of day and search for a product, you can see the price point. So a lot of companies I see the challenge is that they haven't factored in that if they go overseas they may need to work with a distributor or another business. So they've never had that built in. Yeah. So we, from the start, we develop products and anyone I'm working with um, to get into new markets is to say, let's make sure, let's have a factor in there that allows for a distributor to go in. Mm. So they have to cut your margin, but at least you can cut yours a bit, but they're going to take on all the front end capability, warehousing and, and sales and all that sort of thing, right? So you've just got to make sure the pie is big enough that it can fit someone else in when you need to at the same price point because they, you know, I've been in meetings in the US and the UK and straight away they'll, they'll search for that product and say, well, here's what it is in Australia. Mm. Expensive. So I, mean, I was going to ask you to, to what extent when you are going through that process of finding a distributor in a market that you don't know well, to what extent are they interviewing you and are they working out whether they want to work with you and to what, extent are you as the company going in controlling that conversation and, and having leverage oh uh, i think a lot of it you can't walk into a market as a me too so the products speak for themselves mm. so, you know for us uh over the years is i wouldn't walk in with exactly the same product someone else has got otherwise we're just going to price fight yes trying to get rid of an incumbent which makes no sense right so i think it's absolutely understanding the market and where your product sits and that it does add value and then the distributors will see that so they will always sit there because you don't have a relationship yet. You're walking in saying we're from Australia and I want to deal with the US, you know, with a distributor that might be 10 times the size of us saying, well, look, will you take our products in? Um, fortunately, we've got enough reputation and, you know, there's, there's enough, you know, the credibility in terms of what's in stores and things to be able to carry that discussion anyway. But if you were a new business, it would all rely on the fact that, that what product you're presenting and the price point and that you understand that that does have a place in market. Mm. research and bring being able to present the why then yes. and then why the retail is going to accept it and then at that point it should be an easy discussion it just comes down to your numbers in the back end if you've done your pricing right yeah okay so if we think about the kind of products that your companies sell in the consumer space and then the camping space what are the most promising markets for those kind of products these days in 2019? I mean, where in the world doesn't have them? Are you going to places that are kind of new frontier places or are you going to uh, traditional markets and just doing it better? How does that work? Yeah, look, I think it's, um, uh, there's still a reality here that we're mass. So it's, I want mass volume. Yeah. I'm not interested in warehousing a lot of stock and selling ones and twos. So you need to know that the market's ready for it. Have they got expendable income? you know, as a country, a culture, people um, that can actually buy that product. And for the most part, ours is product that you don't, you know, you've got a cable, you don't need a new fancy gold one, you know, you want that, right? So I'm selling for the want. Uh, we've got, you know, 126 different types of camping chairs. Wow. Uh, <laughs> all those, And everyone might say, well, look, I've got a $5 camping chair, I don't need a $149 one. 
but $149 one's a bestseller because of the features. So I need to know that the market we're going into will get that and can afford that. Yes. So, you know, naturally the fit always comes from, if we're going from Australia out is, you know, New Zealand obviously tags on straight away. South Africa is a great market for us. US, UK, Europe makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but ideally and essentially, you know, your big, your big one is you've got to get product into China. Yes. But, I mean, yeah. that, that's a challenge in itself in the way you go to market. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I think it's, you know, the biggest thing there is knowing how much of it's online now. The online mm. shop is actually far superior to any other country. Yeah. You look at Tmall or, and so even if you look at our, a lot of our products, we would sell to retailers. So we would have six in a carton, right? Or 10 in a carton. You can't do that. You need everything individually packed because it's got to be drop shipped. Yes. Um, we would have very big packaging. So if I do a product for Costco, for example, or Aldi, it's all about, you know, the value being perceived as soon as you see the product. So you've got very big packaging, but that costs a lot to send out to a customer if you're doing drop shipping or on, online sales. So we have to think about the packaging. We have to think about you can't have mixed cartons with different colours. It needs to have its own, you know, product code and its own barcode. They're all little simple things, but when you've come from a consumer retail background and then the requirements for them is quite different to online direct selling. And how, how much of a difference do you find that Chinese culture makes when you are actually selling a product to a Chinese consumer via an e-commerce platform? Is it very different to, you know, what your consumer in Australia or the States expects? Yeah, of course. I think it's different types of products. You've still got to go market. It's, you know, smaller areas. They're, they're living in smaller places. So we don't take the full product mix across. Mm. Do your research on, you know, what are they doing? How are they interacting with products? What are they using? Um, you know, that has to come into play as to how we sell it. There's also a fact that a lot of the products, we're, we're quite innovative in Australia. So we actually need to go back a step. Right. It's It's actually... Because we've tried to re-engineer and we're quite a small market really um, with retail, we've come up, we might be on our seventh iteration of something and, and seventh design of the same thing. We could probably be selling level four or five back into China right now because they haven't had those products. So it's great for a, if you look at the end cycle of a product because you can actually, it's a longer cycle now where we can actually go back and reuse some of those products and then come back into two years' time we're into version seven. And do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, we do that a lot. And even with the US, it's quite, um, they're, they're a lot behind the innovation that we've had in Australia. I mean, it's probably because that's our closest market. We've been there. I understand those retailers back to front. You know, we've been working with, you know, the MDs of all these companies for 20 years. You know, we, we're always looking at what's next and how do we stay ahead of the game. Yeah. I've, uh, I've got a final question kind of on product. I was doing the research for this show and I came across a quote that said, one in two Australians own a product that Vanessa's company has produced. And I thought, gee, that is a big call. I wanted yeah. to ask you about it. What are some of the common things that people are likely to own? Well, it's probably, it's, it's more now because that's just the electronics business. So the, uh, it's probably the same, same sort of stats within, it would be definitely the same sort of stats within the outdoor space. Um, if you own a, in the electronic space, if you own a TV, a camera or a computer, you'd, you'd probably own one of our products. So it's, you know, cables, it's uh, power banks, it's action cameras, kids' cameras, licensed products, so all of Barbie, Batman, Superman, headphones, earphones, backpacks, all those things over the years we've developed. 
um, a lot of cameras within markets. Um, yeah, so there's everything from the electronic space. And then on the camping outdoor, it'd be if you own a gazebo, a camp chair, a tent, a gas stove, you know, any of those is probably one of our products. Fantastic. I'm going to go and check later and see which ones we've got. <laughs> You'd be amazed, actually. I was quite surprised myself when I uh, was looking into even Austral, um or Companion, our other outdoor brand. And I walked into our garage and went, geez, we actually have a lot of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I want to just go in a slightly different direction for a moment. And I wanted to um, talk to you about being a woman and running a successful business or running a bunch of successful businesses and raising a family at the same time. How have you done it? Oh, look, you wing it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got four kids. Um, you know, I had my four. So my US entry, I was talking about that before. That was at the same time as I had four kids under six with three boys under three. So, you know, you're up in the middle of the night feeding a baby and doing emails, right? So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's challenging. And even to this point, you know, you think you've got it sorted. And, you know, the other day it's my, my husband and I, our 10th wedding anniversary. Um, so I'm trying to organise lunch, but then I have to go to the lawyers at the same time, working on a, a new acquisition. And then, you know, the kids, two of our kids at the other ends of the school needed this, us there at the same time for a work. So, you know, it's just, let's book the, the lunch right next to the lawyers, jump into the lawyers and do what we've got to do there, race off to the school, and then, you know, talking to my husband, you go to one, one classroom, I'll go to the other, and then we'll do half each and swap over. <laughs> I love it. So it's, it's crazy. It's just, um, I love, I love being a mum and I love business, right? So you've just got to make it work. And of course, you know, my husband um, is very supportive and we, I, you know, I had my business before I met him. I don't think I could be with someone who wasn't, but you know, yeah. you who you have in your life. And I think, yeah. um, that, that helps because he, you know, he's, he's very hands-on with the kids too. But it's always challenging. You know, you just, you just, and I think anyone, you know, busy and you just, if you want it hard enough, you make it work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there are some days, you know, when you're running this empire of lots of companies and overseas travel and children and family and multiple commitments, you know, when tough issues crop up at work, at home, where do you go for your inspiration when things are difficult? You know, when you get stuck or there's a hard decision to make, what's your, what are your set of tools for, for actually dealing with those situations? Uh, a good network of business, like friends, you know, entre other entrepreneurs, as I get it. Mm. I think in terms, if we're talking challenges with business and just talking through things to bounce, um, I think it's incredibly important to have a good network. Mm. Really encourage that. People you can be honest with. It's not... You know, you need to be honest with your challenges and, you know, you can't talk to your team, your family, you know, most of the time don't, don't understand it. Your friends probably don't understand it unless they are business people. Um, so it's really important to have some that you can and it's not just because you, you're always, you know, you, you're used to pitching your idea and you've got to keep the strategy and you've got to keep positive about everything and, and you know, to your teams and things. Being honest, right, also I, I always let my team know when, you know, things are off or, um, but when you've got to get through nitty gritty and you're not quite sure, you've got to talk to some friends and just say, look, here's what I'm going through. What have you done? How did you do it? Um, particularly I find I've got a really good network with some larger, much larger entrepreneurs in Australia and be able to, to get them on the phone and say, Hey, look, you know, I've got this challenge. What do you think? And this is what I'm thinking to, to deal with it. How would you deal with it? And then they come up with something you haven't thought of, right? Cause you haven't experienced yeah. 
So that's, I think that's incredibly important. A yeah. good network, honest network too, that you can actually sit down with your P&L sometimes and open it up. And that's hard to find and you don't need, you can't run around to everyone with that. I've got, you know, three friends that I really lean on a lot and we help each other in each other's businesses. Mm. And then I've got, you know, probably five big entrepreneurs that are friends that, you know, will really help with what's next that I don't know yet. Yeah. They're coming up. I'm learning at a faster rate in the last couple of years than I ever have. Um, and as I take on bigger challenges, it's, you know, I need their advice. How did you get them? Did you just pick up the phone and call them and ask? How did you, you know, how, did, how does one go about finding those, that next step up of a person to talk to? I think entrepreneurs, and what I found, and, and I should have done it earlier, was they are quite happy to help. So getting in, I think EY is incredibly like the entrepreneurial network through EY. Yeah. Uh, the year I went through that and all of the people I'm talking about in terms of help and things have come through that, but you've got to nurture that too, right? So there's give and take. I help them with things that they're working through and, you know, advice and, and you've, you've got to be generous with your time. Yeah. Effort back as well. So we help each other. It's mutually beneficial and we take our time to walk in each other's businesses and boardrooms and say, Hey, I'm going to come in from an outside lens and look at yours and give you some free advice or, you know, I'm going to introduce you to these people and connect you. And so it's, you know, being at events like uh, Entrepreneur of the Year, I think is a really, really good one. Uh, I think all of the events I've been in Telstra Awards and all sorts of things over the years, I think that's the most valuable network. Yeah. Mainly, I think, because they're entrepreneurs. Yeah. So it's different to working with, you know, I don't know, I think there's opportunists that maybe have had a lot of money and they go and buy a franchise or they go and buy a business. It's very different. Yeah. You've started something from yourself and then fallen over and got back up. There's a very humble, open, transparent kind of discussion you can have to say, hey, this might happen. Don't do that. Do this instead. And you, you're really kind of calling each other out a lot too. Yeah. It's, it's um, yeah, I think, but I, I also have learned that even when I first met people now is, you know, you just ask. If they don't want to help you, they say no. Yeah. What have you got to lose? You didn't have that conversation or that knowledge beforehand. So I haven't, I'm yet to hear someone say no, they won't sit down for coffee and have a chat. That's a great piece of advice. Are there any books that you found really helpful on your entrepreneurial journey? And they don't have to be business books, but are there any things that you've, you know, loved and read and gone back to that you can recommend? I'm visual. Yeah. I need to watch stuff and learn and <laughs> Indirect. So for me, I hate reading. Um, and I think, you know, I do everything I can to not read, uh, except for the paper and things. But um, yeah, I, I mine's more uh, videos or podcasts or uh, like every day I'd be looking at something to learn. And I think, you know, I just think the, the it's incredibly important to continue learning. Yeah. We, we don't know everything. And I think that's the pitfall with, you know, I, I think in the past I've even got there where I th thought I knew everything about electronics or I knew everything continues to evolve and you've got to keep on those and keep learning um so i do a lot of youtube um you know watching clips on youtube and you know listening to podcasts and just from others that and i, I want people who've done it not advisors yeah i think that I, I hate that too right that you sit there and someone to come through as a business advisor i'd say well how many companies are you going none but but they can advise you i get it on some things right tax and things absolutely you guys do it but the um, entrepreneurial journey, you need to talk to another business owner and entrepreneur. Yeah. From them. So any, any final thoughts, Vanessa, for business owners who might be listening to this show and thinking, 
mm, I think I want to have a crack at taking my business international. What would you say to them? And in particular, what would you say to the women who are thinking about it? Oh, do it. Absolutely. I'd say, yeah, absolutely do it. And just know, I think there's a lot of, you know, you can procrastinate too much and you can try and you'll never get everything right. But it's knowing that there's a, a risk or you've got a pool there to say you don't hang everything on it, right? You don't put the, you know, put the farm on going to the US. But you've got to, you know, have a clear sense of how much that's going to cost you or how much you're willing to pay to get in there and not believe just in the dreams of it. Um, you know, if you're willing to say, look, this, I'm going to put 100K into this and let's go and go hard. And if it, you know, you've tried everything and it runs out, then it runs out. But, um, and then pull back from that, right? So it's, it's knowing what the risks are, controlling those, um, but definitely go for it. I think the other challenge, I mean, I sat with one of my girlfriends the other day who's, um, you know, she wanted to, she's looking at the next phase of a business and she says, oh, I'm just looking at employing this person. It's going to cost me 150K. And I said, well, okay, but what about the stock? And so this one was bringing in a whole new wants them to bring in a revenue stream. What she didn't consider then was how much she's have to get to invest in the stock to support that and all the team around it and the processes. And so as we look through that and even the warehousing space, so all that wasn't considered. It was just, it's only going to cost me 150,000 for this person. Okay. But have you, it actually turned out the real cost to it was more like 4 million. Can you fund that? Otherwise you're going to hire this person, get them in there busy, disrupt the team and then realize actually we can't afford to do it. And what did she say? Well, then she realised, and she went back with the CFO and going, oh, we forgot about all this stuff. So it was then sitting down with the whole team and doing a mentoring session for them to say, okay, here's the real impact. If you're going to go into that, what are the real costs? Can you afford to fund that? The same thing in the US. If you had to warehouse stock, can you afford to sit on that stock? Mm. What happens if it doesn't sell? And are you happy to clear it out of 50% of the cost if you need to rather than shipping it back to Australia? So there's a sort of simple tests I think you can do now to say okay if it didn't this is what happens you've already got the worst case when you walk in and then from there on is go hard and make sure it does work so to summarize would it be fair to say do it but think it through before you start yeah, yeah but don't don't um, get it all on paper and just work out what the numbers are yeah so I think have the numbers side because it's very exciting it's incredibly absolutely every business should do it it's just you've got to work out your timing and do you have the resource. And it takes a lot of mental time, right, to go in because it's exciting. And so you start to, you know, you, you focus on your Australian business and then you go, okay, let's go in the US. You're learning new things. It's, it's new things happening and new connections and you need to be in those meetings and you're flying over and all of that is disruptive to your existing business. Yeah. You need to know that you've got the support behind you. You know, the CFO is doing the numbers. You've got the team there. Everyone knows not to drop the ball in the existing business while you're doing that. And I think in you as a CEO or a business owner need to have that mental space to go, right, I need to focus on this 100%. Yeah. So you have the team at home that will back you up to say, I've got this. Well, you go over and do that for, you know, focus on that for three months or six months or however long it takes. I think that's some super advice. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us on Business Beyond Borders. It's been really fantastic to talk to you. Uh, I hope you have a great time in Vietnam and I look forward to seeing, you know, what you do next. Thank you. Thanks so much. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher. And if you're aspiring to take on the world by storm with your business and you need a little bit of help, 
check out internationalbusinessaccelerator.com. You can find blogs, ebooks, this podcast, and information about the accelerator itself at that site. So the link again is internationalbusinessaccelerator.com.